Hey guys, Bear Grylls here just to say super excited for Charles Thorpe's podcast coming soon. You guys are going to love this. What a great guy he is and so many great stories. So enjoy these and remember above all, never give up. Now I personally believe that there's nothing better than a great adventure, whether it's to another country or into the backyard. It can have an amazing ability to change not just the way that we see the world, but also the way that we see ourselves. That is exactly what you're going to hear about from our incredible guests. On Great Adventures, I'm going to be hanging out with actors, athletes, thought leaders, and of course explorers, some old friends, and some new, to discuss how being adventurous benefited their lives. My name is Charles Thorpe. For over a decade, I've been chasing down epic stories professionally for magazines and television shows, and now I'm bringing those conversations here. I organized a few repatriation convoys, but through what was enemy territory, conflict did not scare me. The threat of, of working under shelling with gunfire did not affect me, and if anything, it made me more effective. That was United Nations Special Advisor Fabrizio Hashio, and it's time for Great Adventures. So Fabrizio, thank you so much for being on today. I'd love to just hear about the origin story. What really drove you to the UN? How you began your work at the UN? Well, thank you. And it's, it's a great pleasure uh, to, to be with you. I came to the UN indirectly, which is the way most people end up in the UN. I was recruited in, in Sudan, in Darfur, at a time when nobody knew where Darfur was. I think we were four foreigners in, in the whole of Darfur at that stage. That was in the 80s. But I ended up in Darfur through a British volunteer agency called Quaker Peace and Service. So I started my overseas work as a volunteer. And that came very much from a desire to work in developing countries to contribute to the development between high school and university, I took a year off. I visited a friend whose father was the German consul general in southern India. I traveled alone for a while in India, aged 18. This was in 1980-81. I took a train from Madras, which turned out to be a three-day train journey. I had European distances in mind. And... I arrived in Calcutta, a bit overwhelmed by the journey I just made, reading Proust uh, along the way, which is the right book for a three-day train journey. And there I was taken to visit the homes of um, Mother Teresa. This was in 1980-81 when in Calcutta, I mean, India then was very different from today. Half the 10 million person city lived in extreme poverty. People literally died of starvation on the streets. And Mother Teresa's nuns would go out on the streets looking for the sick. And I spent some hours there in a home for the dying destitute. And that was a very pivotal moment for me. I was young. And you had rows and rows of people who were quite literally dying because there were, there were other homes run by Mother Teresa for those who were very sick or those who, who, who just needed food. This was exclusively for those who were at death's door. And they were laid on a, on a bare, polished concrete floor about one meter from one another on, on white sheets. And they were being administered to by, by Mother Teresa's nuns and by foreign volunteers. But what struck me most were not the volunteers, but the individuals themselves. And I had some short conversations with them. The dignity and the power in life in these people who had lost everything and were facing death. But there was a calm heroism in the face of adversity and on the eve of death, which I found very inspiring. And then I returned to the UK, but I had always this idea that I, I wanted to work in the developing world. And I was left with a feeling, you know, we shouldn't be talking so much, we should be doing more. And that sort of further fueled this idea of, of, wanting, of wanting to serve. So I took a postgraduate degree in forestry um, as a means of finding a job in the developing world. 
I was recruited by this small British NGO. I was off, sent off to Sudan. And at, at the time, I, I was ready to go anywhere. The harder, the better. But my condition was it has to be somewhere near the sea because I'd grown up on the sea. I felt I could deal with any hardship as long as the sea was close. That gave me inner serenity and strength. And they told me Sudan. I looked up Sudan in an atlas. I saw it was on the Red Sea. And I thought, this is fine. Signed a contract on that basis. And I was sent to El Jinin in Darfur, which is right on the other side of Sudan. And apart from one or two places in China, I don't think there's anywhere on the earth further away from the sea. So in that sense, uh, I ended up there and in the UN by a series of happy misunderstandings. And then I worked there as a volunteer for just over a year. And then UNHCR were looking for a so-called rural development expert with, with my one year of work experience and a postgraduate degree. I'd become suddenly a so-called rural development expert. They wanted someone to help develop projects for refugees to help them become self-sufficient. At that time, there was a civil war in Chad between uh, Habre and Debbie. Habre, who was now in a, in a prison for war crimes in Senegal, had been basically ethnically cleansing, before that word even existed, a tribe called the Zagawa, who were a nomadic tribe. And they'd come to refugee camps in Sudan where we were looking after them. And I was recruited to provide, to help them develop projects that would make them less dependent on food aid and allow them to farm. But it was a little bit illusionary because it was desert and uh, the ability to farm anything in the desert was extremely difficult and they didn't have easy access to land. So I was recruited, I, I think basically because they found it virtually impossible to find a more serious candidate to go to one of the remotest places on earth. And then while I was there, they looked for someone. There was a war going on in South Sudan, in Juba. The war had started again. Juba was about to fall. There had been an attack on the head of office. UNHCR had a large program there for Ugandan refugees. They were looking for someone. I volunteered. I was much more junior than the position. But again, I think there was no one else volunteering. I barely knew that there was a war going on there, frankly. But then I started working there in a conflict area. And that was the end of my rural development um, uh, expertise job and the beginning of a more mainstream UN career in, in humanitarian, peacekeeping, war-related, human rights, war-related. Take me back a little bit to your days in the UK and doing your research, your initial study. What things were on the page that you noticed and in what ways did the region and the people differ from perhaps the research that you had done? And what about that initial experience surprised you? Many people, when I was going off, said to me, but Fabrizio, how are you going to bear it? I mean, you'll see so much poverty. You'll see so much suffering. How are you going to bear it? We had severe malnutrition. We had kids with marasmus. We had babies that were six months old with swollen stomachs and when you, from dehydration, when you pinch their skin, it would stay in place. There was a lot of serious suffering. But when you walked into the, to the camps, the first image you would get was one of joy. You would be surrounded by small kids, many of whom had never seen someone of my skin color or with my hair, and they would be desperate to touch you, to play with you, to feel you. It was like you know, some strange alien had come from outer space. I mean, you were a source of endless amusement and diversion. The, the, the hospitality of the poorest people on earth in rural places 30 years on never ceases to amaze me, and I see it everywhere I go. You would go into a hut where, I mean, the refugee huts were made of, made of sorghum stalks. I mean, corn stalks would be the equivalent in the US and any gale would, would blow them away. And the possessions would consist of a few blankets that they would get from UNHCR, a few tin cooking pots that they would get from UNHCR, three stones, which was the basis for their cooking, 
the firewood that they would often bring from miles and miles away, collecting firewoods, and usually it was the, the women who did it, involved days and days of walking. And that was basically it. But they would give you, they would have saved up for a bit of sugar. They would have saved up, they would have sold some of their UNHCR rations to have a bit of tea and a bit of sugar. And they would give you from, from that tea and that sugar, although that tea and that sugar represented a month or two months income. Any visitor was worth so much. So you felt tremendously privileged to see such human grandeur. And this I've been struck time and time again about. And then you're not a passive bystander. If you'd just been there as a spectator, it probably would have been overwhelming. But the very fact that you were there and could make a difference. And then the third element is the camaraderie. I mean, people who live in extreme circumstances, and you know, many have written about this in the context of men and women in battle, men and women in war zones, but it's as, if not as true of humanitarian workers, the sense of bonds that you form where there's no room for the usual bullshit. Um, and, you know, people are what they are. And all that is, is very fulfilling. So, and even the hardship, there was no running water, there was no electricity. The water came in, in um, big leather sacks on the backs of donkeys. It was literally, they would go to the wadi, which is a dried riverbed, they would dig holes in the sand until they found water. And as the dry season progressed, they'd have to dig deeper and deeper and the water would get murkier and murkier, browner and browner. And then they would, with a calabash, they would fill massive um, sewn together sacks that were on the back of a donkey. And then they would deliver it house to house. And that was our, our water. So you lived a very simple life, but that simplicity in itself meant that when you got something special, like once a month, the plane would come in and that was only a connection to the outside world and it would bring packages. And sometimes there would be a melted bar of gooey chocolate that somebody had sent you from Khartoum. That kept you happy for a week. Do you remember the plane coming into Sudan? Do you remember the initial experiences of landing there? Yes. This was well before the discovery of oil that happened 10 or 15 years later, or at least on a commercial scale, happened much later. On the border between North and South Sudan, so Sudan was among the poorest countries on earth, and Khartoum was a very rundown city. So, I mean, one thing was striking was the pervasive sense of, of sand. But the other thing that was striking is you did have in Khartoum, you had the expat community, the diplomatic community, the aid workers, and then you had the Sudanese, and they, they were very much apart. That I didn't feel comfortable with. Even among the expats, there were different groups. There was us volunteers who were sort of at the bottom of the pecking order, and then there were the diplomats from the donor countries who were at the top of the pecking order, and then the UN was, was somewhere closer to them, but not quite as high as them. So that, that, that sort of stratification was quite clear. But I knew my duty station was in the West, Darfur, but there was no way of getting there. So, you know, the first days there, I had my language school that lasted three weeks. And then I had to try and get out West. And it was extremely difficult because there were no flights flying. And I would literally show up on the airstrip. I mean, in those days, you could show up on the airstrip. And I would asked pilots whether they, where they were going, if anybody was going to El Janina. Nobody was going to El Janina. And then finally, I found some Saudi um, pilots in a C-130 who were going, because I'd been told the next um, relief flight um, by Oxfam, in fact, who we were affiliated with, wasn't going to go for another month. And I, I just wanted to get out of Khartoum. I wanted to get there. And I begged and begged these Saudi pilots, and they didn't want to take me. And I went back day after day, and finally they took me, and I turned up. And then Khartoum has some paved streets. Janina, I think even to this day, I'm not sure how many paved streets it has. It's just sand. I mean, literally, there was no paved street. There was no building. The better buildings were of brick. 
including the Sultan's Palace. Um, but there was no building of more than, no building had two stories. They were all one-story building, most made of, of straw. And a few of the more elegant buildings were one-story brick buildings. None of them had glass. There was no glass. As I said, there was no um, electricity or, or running water. But I think one of the impressions was the sand, because you walked a lot. I walked a lot. And it's like walking on the beach in heavy sand. I mean, everything, it slows you down. And then you're doing that in 40 degrees heat. And so everything works at a different pace. The other thing that was striking is they, there had been foreigners there. During the famine, there was a big mission from Save the Children, but they'd been there for short periods. And there was a lot of wariness towards foreigners. Khartoum was referred to as Sudan. I mean, they considered themselves a world apart. The only connection to the outside world was radio. Um, the only connection we had was through um, mail with this plane that when it wasn't, when it was coming, was meant to come once a month. So you were completely cut off. I mean, it was a different world. But that meant relating to those people around you was all the more important. So... Luckily, I had my language skills, but, and I made very good friends with the driver who worked with me, but we would have arguments about whether it was true or not that the Americans went to the moon, because in his cosmology, the moon belonged to, a, to an outer sphere that only God had access to, and that it was impossible for man to ever reach. There was a great deal of piety, which was very moving, it was also very moving how, how people complained a great deal about small things, but never about the really big things. The ability for people to, to withstand extreme hardship and pain, barely flinching. I mean, it was, it was familiar, but it was different. On the downside, as a foreigner there, you were a khawaja, which, which is a word that goes back to Turkish times, meaning foreigner, stranger, but it's not used as a compliment. I mean, it, it basically means, it's not exactly hostile, but it means you're a very strange being. And there was an old Greek merchant who'd lived in the town for 30 or 40 years from the time of the war when the Brits, in the wake of the Brits, many Greek merchants came in. And people still referred to him as the Khawaja. And I just thought, you know, I could be here for the rest of my life, and I'll still be a stranger. I made friends. I had many, we, we went out and illegally drunk the local beer and the local date spirits and, uh, you know, did, did all those things that elsewhere makes you bond with people. I did all of that, and yet you, you remain one step removed. You're someone who's had to enter new situations, new cultures, new regions, more than most in more trying areas and more trying regions under difficult political situations. So I wonder in what ways do you break the ice? In what ways do you communicate with people on a higher level? I think respect is all, dignity is all. And, you know, one of the reasons when I was in Darfur, there was a lot of mistrust. This was 87, 88, 89. A lot of mistrust towards aid workers was that there had been a major aid, prog aid program there in 83, 84 during the big famine. The aid organization that had come in then had ignored all local power structures. They had just gone from village to village with a big truck, thrown out sacks of grain, not bothering to ask whether it was the right type of grain, not bothering to check whether the grain was fit to eat or not, just throwing the grain as you would throw seeds into a fish pond to feed the fish, acting with a, what came across as a lot of arrogance. I'm sure they weren't all arrogant people, but that's the way. They were, there, they were in their big trucks and their, in their land cruisers. They didn't stop to drink tea. In Sudan and Darfur, then, you know, when you greeted people, goodbyes were always fairly curt. But any form of greeting, you know, greetings could last half an hour. Um, 
you know, and there's a very elaborate ritual of greeting. So, you know, if I come up, shake your hand and say hi, or walk into a room and maybe just wave, as we New Yorkers do all the time, and that's considered profoundly disrespectful. But to refuse hospitality is profoundly disrespectful. To throw food at somebody off the back of a truck is, is stamping their dignity in the back. You know, for security reasons, our world has changed, sadly. That's happened throughout my career. and I've been involved in many incidents that led to that change. But I think the thing is, get out of your car, walk, talk. And I think the importance of speaking the local language. I think if you were compared the proportion of aid workers in many countries who speak the local language 30 years ago to the number who proportion who speak it today, I would fear that it's gone down. I mean, now we're even more, often for good security reasons, behind in our massive compounds with our barbed wire fences. We wouldn't be allowed to drink water that came to us on the back of a donkey. I used to ride uh, to work um, on a horse. I had a pet hyena. I mean, none of that <laughs> is, is, conceivable, is conceivable now. You have, to, you have to explain that more. You had a pet hyena. This is in Sudan. There was an orphaned hyena which showed up at the marketplace. And since it was a strange creature in a strange place, everybody felt the natural home for it was with the stranger. So it ended up in my home and it would occasionally escape to everybody's chagrin. And of course, nobody recognized that it was semi-tame. There's only so much you can tame a hyena. <laughs> so I would have to run out around trying to catch it, which was the greatest public spectacle. And I think, I, I, I'm, I, I think my neighbors purposefully let it loose now and again. I mean, open the gate of my compound so they'd have the joy of the spectacle of me running around like a madman trying to catch the beast. But eventually people were worried, so I, I returned it to the wild. Did uh, she or he have a name? Yeah, he was, he was named after my former employers, which they weren't very happy about. So um, <laughs> it was called Quaker. What does uh, a young hyena eat? A sheep once a week. And, the, and what's super impressive is they will eat everything, fur, bone. I mean, there's absolutely nothing, nothing, nothing left. We talk about your initial driver to be of service and your first experience in Sudan. Then you mentioned you moved to Juba, where you were in a more dangerous situation, much more unstable camp in a conflict area. Was that something that you initially signed up for? Was that something or a circumstance in which you knew you were always going to end up? Or is it just something that you said yes to once the opportunity came? This was all a, a journey of discovery. I'd, I'd, I traveled in my youth. I grew up in three different countries, four different countries in Europe. But I mean, this was exposure to a very different world. I'd spent a significant part of my adolescence in, in Chile under Pinochet, but it wasn't an open conflict. It was a dictatorship. Chuba was very, very different. Chuba was a besieged city. This was 88, 89. You know, you could only get in. There were no commercial flights there. The only route in was by chartered aircraft. We were in a single-engine plane. Today, no UN employee is allowed to fly in a single-engine plane after too many crashes. And then we were above the city, and the, the pilot went into a nosedive and started spiraling. And I said, what, is there something wrong? I mean, I was nervous. And he said, no, no, this is how we land here. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, that's so they don't shoot at us. And I said... Who? And he said, the SPLA, I mean, the, the Sudanese People's Liberation Army. So the point was, then I realized this is quite serious, but I had no idea what I was getting into. I was sent there because I was the only international to volunteer. It was way above my, my grade. I was a so-called, you know, I was a second lieutenant, if you like. The position I was going into was the equivalent of a major or colonel to use a military analogy, but they had no one else to go and they needed somebody there desperately. And that's how I found out that the, the city was surrounded by the Sudanese People's Liberation Army. 
at that time, it never happened. But at that time, everybody was convinced that the city was about to fall, about to be taken by the SPLA. The army had more or less given up. They were desperate. The supply lines were broken. The town was full of displaced persons. There were hundreds of thousands of Dinka camped out, living in awful circumstances. Shortly after that, a major, major aid operation started, the so-called Operation Lifeline Sudan, which is one of the, the classics of aid operations, which, which lasted 20 years or something, where they did a huge airlift and barge operations and road operations into the city. But at that point, this was just before it started, and it was, it was the lowest point of the city. So there was this very strange feeling that we're all going to die. We're all, this is the last days. And shelling was, I mean, I worked later in Sarajevo. Compared to Sarajevo, the shelling was modest. But it was, there was periodic shelling. Periodically, people were being killed. But above all, there was this sense we're about to be run over and then that's the end. So there was this sense also of everything goes. And Unitsiad had a very large operation out of there. It had been the darling of the aid world during the brief peace deal. So USAID had a compound of about 100 houses that were very luxurious with a tennis courts and, and swimming pool. The UN had a similar compound, but they were all empty. There were two expatriates left in Juba, myself and somebody from the World Food Program, I mean, eight expats, plus a few from NGOs, but from the UN, there were two where there had been hundreds. Everybody else had evacuated. And there was this feeling of, we're all about to die. And UNITIA had this, this big program that they were shutting down, looking after Ugandan refugees that had fled Uganda, and the UNHCR was saying the camps were being attacked by the rebels who were getting support from the Ugandan government. So UNHCR was saying we have to return all the, 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 the these refugees. If they stay here, they will get killed. They have to go back to Uganda. The refugees did not want to go back to Uganda, so they were very angry with UNHCR, who they felt was betraying them. So they had basically attacked the former head of office, which is why they needed a volunteer. He had to be evacuated very clearly, and they needed someone to go in. These were highly educated refugees. I mean, they were not rural nomads like the ones I've been de dealing with in Chad. Many, there were many ministers among the former refugees, but they'd been brought to nothing. They'd been used to very good treatment. And I arrived there, and there were packs of letters from the refugees, all saying how, comparing Unitia to Hitler, saying how abusive we were. The strange thing was, the signature was always, and thanks. So you mm -hmm. have this endless series of abuse and how you were decimating them, and they always finished, and thanks. And they always copied to the Secretary General, the Pope, and Queen Elizabeth. And then I started talking to them. And I said I wouldn't receive any more letters, but I would talk to anybody who wanted to come see me between this and this time. But it would have to be a certain number because I was worried about security. And then I found out that these were, you know, real people who'd been through the most traumatic events and who... That, you know, they, would, they had seen UNHCR as their savior, and they found, and UNHCR had been, in some sense, their savior, and they felt tremendously let down, and they did not want to believe that the UN, with all that that meant, could not save them. My job was to close down the office. All the assets were disappearing, because everything, you know, since the world was coming to an end the next day, what did it mean to steal a Land Cruiser or a, or a, or a truck or something? I tried to deal with that, not very well. And then I organized a few repatriation convoys, but through what was enemy territory. Conflict did not scare me. The threat of working under shelling with gunfire did not affect me. And I could be, and if anything, it made me more effective. So then I thought I'd found my calling, that I was meant to work in these situations that I was gifted at it, it came naturally to me. And I went from there to the occupied territories where I worked with the UN agency that looks after Palestinian refugees during the First Intifada, where I was also in the midst of the clashes between the, the Palestinians and the Israeli defense forces. Then I went to former Yugoslavia, always with this idea that conflict, if you like, was where I was particularly well-suited to work.
You mentioned Bosnia, obviously very complicated situation, very difficult situation. When you first got on the ground in Bosnia, what were you there to accomplish? What was your task as part of the, the UN? UNHCR traditionally does not work in conflict zones. Juba was an exception, but Juba, it ended up, I was there to try and close the office down. It did not want to stay. And, and it had a large program there for Ugandan refugees when the place had been peaceful. And then I was the last, for a time, the last head of office, basically, to try and close it down. So it was more the exception. And then in Bosnia, the war started in 1990, if I'm not mistaken, 91. First in Slovenia, then in Croatia, which were all states within the greatest state of former Yugoslavia, who, in reaction to a move to suspend their autonomy and to reduce the federal nature of the republic, had basically were asserting their independence. And that led to a very bloody war. And that war produced refugees. People fled to neighboring countries. People fled within the former Yugoslavia. So it was clear that people who were still displaced, i.e. not technically refugees because they hadn't yet crossed an international border, with the recognition of these new republics would become de facto refugees because once the borders were recognized as international, they would change status. So UNHCR sent a very small two people to look into what should be done, how UNHCR should get ready for this, how we should set up. It was me, it was a, a very charismatic Spaniard called Jose Maria Mendeluce, who'd spent virtually the whole of his career in, in Central America during the, the wars in the 80s. And we were there to see how UNHCR could prepare and what should be done. While we were there, the war broke out in Bosnia. The organization with the expertise for working in the midst of war zones is the International Committee of the Red Cross. That is their mandate. That's what they've been doing for a hundred and something years. There, they had not their strongest team in Bosnia when this happened. So they sent in the A-team. The A-team was killed by a shell coming into Sarajevo. And that put the ICRC out of action until for at least, I can't remember the exact date, but if I'm not mistaken, about a year. Meanwhile, we were there on the ground. We had relief supplies. And Jose Maria Mendeluce took a decision with the support of the then High Commissioner for Refugees, uh, a very extraordinary Japanese woman called Sadako Ogata, that we were not going to stand by and say these victims of war haven't crossed an international boundary, therefore they don't fall within our mandate, we'll let them die here or we'll let them do badly until they manage to get across the border and then we'll help them. So we moved everything we had to start to begin supporting people, anyone we could, anyone we could get to within Bosnia. And we mounted, it started a very small operation. It started as a $6 million operation in late 1990. The war started in early 91 in Bosnia, and we quickly went within months to, I think, a $200, $300 million operation. We started in June in Sarajevo when the city was closed. We started what to date is still the biggest humanitarian airlift ever, bigger than the, the airlift to Berlin in the immediate aftermath of the war. By the time I left, 14, 15 months after the day I arrived, broken, the UNHCR operation was 400, 500 people strong, delivering across the whole of Bosnia. By then it had a peacekeeping operation dedicated solely to helping it deliver humanitarian aid, the first of its type ever. And then UNHCR mounted the largest aid operation in the midst of a war zone. Take us into that time. It's the beginnings of this operation. How are you managing? What is your day-to-day -day like? And, and where are you based in Bosnia? This is spring 1991. And by then, I mean, we're no longer two. We're, we're a team of five or six internationals. So still small. And we'd recruited 
maybe a dozen national staff who were formidable. And I remember, and the conflict was just beginning, and nobody knew how it would evolve. There were people in Sarajevo saying, we've lived in peace among communities for hundreds of years. There's going to be no war. It will, it will pass by. And there were others saying, we've fought for hundreds of years. This is going to be a very bloody war. And both things were true if you look at the history. History of bitter conflict and history of long living together in peace. We stayed in the, in the, in the so-called Holiday Inn, which had been built for the Olympics, the Sarajevo Olympics, a few years before. Um, uh, probably one of the first Holiday Inns in, in the Eastern Bloc country. We were staying there, and that became the scene of the fighting. The first peace demonstrators that wanted peace filed past it, and then there was sniper fire from the roof of the Holiday Inn where we were staying. In spring, I went off to visit family in London. You could still fly out. I think I took the last commercial flight out. When I came back three days later, the hotel had been ransacked because it had become the base for, for Serb, for the Serb leadership in Sarajevo. The Muslim police, they, they had armed themselves through the police, attacked it. I'd lost all my things. It was one of three hotels I stayed in in Sarajevo. There was, each time I had to move because the hotel was destroyed while I was there. So the hotel was completely destroyed. So I, I moved into another hotel. The Serbs then moved up into Pale. And when the Serb leadership left the town, Everybody knew this was the beginning of the end because while they were in the town, the damage they were going to do to the town was limited. But after that storming of the Holiday Inn, they moved to, to Pale, which was in the hills. Sarajevo is like in a, I mean, if you want to shell someone or some place with artillery fire, there are very few towns in the world that would be better suited than Sarajevo. It's like at the bottom of a pot surrounded by hills. The, the Serbs controlled the hills. So they had these big artillery pieces in these idyllic little pear and, and apple orchards. So you could, when you, we went up to visit Palais to negotiate, you drive through these sort of spring sessions with apple and, and pear bloom, the trees in bloom, and, and then you'd see, you'd see the, the big artillery pieces with Serb gunners with their, with their bottle of Shlibovica and chain smoking between lobbing shells into this in you know the into the and then there was the sniper fire so you were you were in this firing range on on the wrong side and the serbs controlled the high ground they were completely invulnerable in the high ground there was some fighting in the borders of the city but the serbs who had tanks I mean, you ask what it's like in those early days. In the early days, one of our colleagues left the office and ran straight into a tank that was coming the wrong way down the high street. So then, in fact, in our office, so I was in different hotels. My colleagues stayed in private places. I left one hotel because it was taken over and I lost all my stuff and it stopped functioning as a hotel. That was the holiday inn. Then I moved to another that was shelled and I had to live in the middle of the night because it caught fire and the same happened in the third hotel. We started living in the office, which was right opposite the president's building. So it was right office. It was the Institute of Public Health. And we had, they had kindly given us and considerately given us the top floor. And we had a beautiful view. It was in downtown Sarajevo. But it was right, literally opposite the presidency. And the presidency was a favorite target for obvious reasons of, of the shell fire. Whether intentionally or by accident, our office was shelled and it was flattened and our staff were in the basement. After that happened, there was a decision taken to evacuate Sarajevo. That was in early June, but the pressure was to go back because the town was under siege. A decision had been reached that we needed to open an airlift. So I was sent back two weeks later. And then the only, there was no air access. The only way to get in was by convoy. We went with a heavily armed convoy from the peacekeeping mission through Belgrade. To get to Belgrade, I drove across a highway that was mined, that nobody had used, with a very brave national staff member who accompanied me called Vesna Vukovic, who was superb. It was a three-day trip. The convoy was attacked just before getting into Sarajevo overnight. 
and and then we were operating in Sarajevo. By then, we were housed with the peacekeepers in a fortified, well, compared to today, it wouldn't be considered very fortified, but it had a sort of single ring of barbed wire, which was considered fortified in those days. But we were embedded, myself and Vesna were embedded with the peacekeepers, the only, the only humanitarian personnel. And at that point, there was no humanitarian agency except the UNHCR operating in Bosnia. And then we said, we're here to open the airport and to start the airlift. And everybody thought we were completely crazy. There were some journalists there who were taking bets about when we would finally give up and when we would realize just how crazy we were. The runway, and we saw it because we crossed the runway coming in, just had a whole battalion of, of Serb tanks on it. And it was a Serb military base. And they were lobbying... They were bombarding Dobrinja, which was right next, uh, a suburb next to the airport, from the airbase. So the idea of the airport ever being liberated for eight flights was considered completely crazy. And then we, with General McKenzie, tried to negotiate. General McKenzie was a Canadian general who led the peacekeeping force. We tried to negotiate the opening of the airport. We got absolutely nowhere. And then President Mitterrand, on June the 27th, as it turned, decided that he'd had enough of this. And France traditionally had a very close relationship with the Serbs, dating back to the Second World War, and that he was going to fly into Sarajevo Airport and declare it open. And he came from, via a, bat- a French battleship in the Mediterranean, he came from a summit in Lisbon, and we had French troops in the mission, and they informed General McKenzie, myself, that we should get ourselves ready, because the next day, Mitterrand was coming, and we should go and greet him. And we all thought, this is never going to happen. I mean, he'll be shot down. And we were told that was not for us to worry about. And we all went out dutifully to the airport next day, and sure enough, two helicopters came in, the Serbs held their fire, they landed, and it was President Mitterrand, and Bernard Kushner, who was a former head of Médecins Sans Frontières, the big aid group, and was then, um, I think, the French Minister of Humanitarian Aid. The same day came three plane loads of French paratroopers to supervise the, the Serbs withdrawing from the airstrip. And then UNHCR started flying the planes in the next day. And I won all my bets with the journalists. The first distributions... It was meant to be UNHCR tracking the staff, delivering the staff, the UN peacekeeping force, UNPROFOR, providing security. We thought we could handle three or four planes a day. Within a week, we had 14, 16, not a, a day. We had 14, 16 planes coming in a day, C-130s, from every air force across Europe. I think that the record was something like 24 planes in a single day. By then, we had many more staff. I mean, the backbone of the operation were these incredible national staff members, most of them women, frankly, because all the men were either fighting at the front or had left in order to avoid fighting. So we had all, they were all graduates, um, you know, with degrees in English literature or something like that. Overnight, they were aid workers. They were crisscrossing the fronts. I mean, some of the bravest, most inspiring people I've ever seen, but they were the backbone of the operation and they were unloaded, you know, they were bossing around American and French military personnel, these seasoned uh, foreign legionnaire, and occasionally the airport would come under shelling. We'd all go into our little bunkers. We'd wait 20 minutes for the air shelling to stop. They were living in hangars. The, the hangars had holes in the roof from the shelling. They'd go back, sleep in the same hangars. I mean, it was an incredible operation. You're there to offer supplies. You're there to offer peace and help the refugees. But you're driving over mined roads. And the mindset of that, the mental pressure of being under a circumstance like that. You know, I went through an evolution. So, you know, at that point, I was in my late 20s. I'd worked in conflict areas, nothing this intense, but I'd worked in in Sudan, I'd worked in the occupied territories. The very first convoy I took, we took up into the hills towards where the Serbs were, because that's where one of our key warehouses was located from the first flights that had come in. There was sniper fire coming in, and nothing hit our vehicle, but it came very close. And some of the journalists, because it was a big story, 
were following the convoy. Some of their vehicles got hit. Nobody got hurt. So we were up there and we were unloading. And I was quite nervous because the unloading was going too slow and we borrowed these trucks. And I was worried that if we didn't return the trucks in time, we wouldn't be able to borrow them again. And the journalists were saying, did something go wrong? Was it the sniper fire? Were you put off? They kept on saying, why are you nervous? I mean, I was nervous because I was worried we weren't going to get the trucks again because we weren't going to return them in time. I was completely unfazed by that. I didn't see that danger. Later, I did. But at that point, I didn't. It was not. To me, if you and I climb a mountain, then you'll be totally relaxed and I'll be <laughs> petrified. I'll think you're naive and silly. You don't get the danger. So, you know, it's all very much in one's mind. But then we did a few other convoys. So that was just to a warehouse. But then we negotiated a ceasefire to this place called Dobrinia, which was right on the front line of the airport, which had been literally besieged for two months. Nobody had been in there. From no, a journalist had tried to get there, had been shot. It was one of the first sites I saw coming back, that journalist being evacuated with bullets in their leg, trying to get into Dobrinia. Nobody had been there. And we, got, we managed to negotiate a two-hour ceasefire to bring in aid. And people could not believe the firing had stopped. People had not eaten because they had not been prepared for the siege. They had been putting the last breadcrumbs they had on their windowsills to try and trap birds and pigeons to eat those. And this is an urban population. I mean, they're not used to. This is a middle-class urban European population. And they came out of the cellars and they were white. I mean, they were, I'd never seen anything like that. They were like goats and they were first in disbelief. But then there was relief, even if it was two hours. So there was also a great sense of achievement. There was a convoy we took to a village on the other side of the airport called Budmir, where the inhabitants came out and gave us flowers. I mean, there was this sense of, there was, the, and, the, and we had this completely misfounded sense of invulnerability. We had this name for ourselves of um, Ogata's kamikazes. I mean, we, we thought, I mean, up until that point, I believed we were protected by the blue flag. The peacekeepers only moved around in, in armored vehicles. We wanted to show that we were close to the people. So even when they had armored vehicles to offer us, insisted on moving in our so-called soft skin vehicles. We walked the streets. We did everything to show we were close to the people. But it was born out of a, an excessive sense of, of, of confidence. I come back to my point before. We were there, we were working, we were achieving things. We also believed in that sense there's no way that if somebody had told us then this siege will last for three and a half years, almost four years, we wouldn't have believed them. Great Adventures is lucky to have partners that share our love for a good story, like Whistlepig Whiskey. They're American rice perfected in the beautiful Vermont countryside. I've been to their farm, I've seen the process, and a lot of care goes into creating each glass. It's also the perfect nightcap after a day in the wild. Check them out on Instagram, at Whistlepig Whiskey. You say up until a point you believed you were impenetrable and invincible in that element. Was there a moment that changed that mindset for you? It was an accumulation of, of moments. Seeing people killed or injured was a daily occurrence. But there were many other towns, smaller unknown towns in the east of the country and other parts of the country that were getting no aid um, and were at the point of falling um, into the hands with resultant massacres. And the government tried to, said, you have to go to Gorashia. That was a town in the east, a big town. I'd been there. I was one of the last to go in there when it was overrun by refugees from neighboring places who'd lost their land. And then it grew cut off. And it was far in the east. I mean, not far by normal standards. It was a two and a half hour trip by normal standards. It was a two day trip by war standards. And they said, you have to go there. We got on the radio. They had HF radio. They told us how they were operating on bodies without anesthetic. And so I went back to Pale and I moved with the Karadzic and Mladic and the Serb leaders trying to get permission to go. And they kept on saying, you can only go once we've gone in and cleaned up. And we knew what that meant. And we went time and time again. And they kept on saying, no, finding some pretext. 
And finally, for reasons which I never quite understood, after a, after a huge meal with lots of drink, they said, yes, you can go. So we, we, we assembled a convoy with vital medical equipment and some food supplies and set off. And it was a very long, complicated route. We, we passed through towns which were in the midst of heavy battle. And we arrived at the foot of a road, which was the last hill you had to pass over before descending into Barajda. So we were literally an hour away after a one and a half day trip. But dusk was falling and the, there was a Serb block and it was a mountain road through woods, a dirt road. And the Serbs said, don't go back, it's dangerous. And we thought, well, they just don't want us to supply a garage. That's why they're telling, they're telling us to turn back. They said, no, we've had colleagues killed, comrades killed, and you'll be ambushed. And we thought it was just all to discourage us going. So we insisted going on. Anyway, we didn't feel safe because we were in a very remote place. So we went up, and sure enough, halfway up, we came across a vehicle that had been ambushed with three dead bodies. So we put the bodies in the back of my car and started moving again. And then we heard heavy machine gun fire behind us. So we sped up a bit. And in front of me was, uh, was one of these French armored personnel carriers that weigh about 16 tons. I mean, they're massive. And then as we were moving away from the machine gun fire, and when the machine gun fire started, I told my assistant, look, get out of my car, which was a soft car. Get into the armored personnel carrier. You'll be safer there. So we stopped, she got in the armor personnel carrier, and we, we moved on. And then almost immediately, there was a massive explosion. I thought it was a shell, and my car was covered in, in a shower of dirt. And I backed down because I thought we were being shelled. But then I saw this armored personnel carrier go about three meters in the air, turn a somersault in the air, and land in its back. I mean, as if it was a, the 16-ton thing was a little ball. And then I realized it couldn't have been a shell that would do that. But we jumped out of the cars because then machine gun fire started. Some of the, our troops were returning fire. And we went to the roadside. I was there with, uh, I was with a doctor from WHO visiting Sarajevo. You know, it dawned on us that in fact it was an ambush. It was a landmine. It, not a landmine. It was an anti-tank mine because nothing else would have had that effect on, on something that heavy. And this doctor turned to me and he said, Fabrizio, he was an elderly, he was a former health advisor to Margaret Thatcher. He was a very elderly senior um, doctor who'd seen a lot. And he said to me, as if he was talking about the weather, he said, Fabrizio, I'd be very surprised if anybody's still alive in the armored personnel carrier. And I felt awful because I just put in my assistant. I mean, so I felt not only responsible because the convoy had been my idea, but also with a particular responsibility. But we couldn't move. We were pinned down by the fire, but it stopped. And after about 10 minutes, I mean, it felt like an eternity. I don't know how long it was. We went up and we knocked on the door of the armed personnel and they all came out and they were all alive. And it was a great relief. But then we were under pressure to move. And so with it, we had a second armored personnel carrier. We dragged that one off the road and we started on a journey together. As soon as we started on, the truck that was behind my vehicle hit another landmine. We couldn't move without abandoning two trucks and the vehicles that were behind. So we had to spend the night there. And we had three dead bodies in my car to give that a reality. We were all convinced that we were going to die that night. And some of the soldiers were flipping out, but there was a very together British colonel, uh, Lloyd Davis, she was called. She was the first female to get a senior rank in what is the elite British regiment, the Household Cavalry. So she was a, a person in her own right. But I learned many years later, uh, she took her own life. And the stress of that incident, even though it shouldn't show at the time, was or post-traumatic stress disorder to which that also contributed. But she took charge. We all piled into the one remaining armored personnel carrier, except for some of the troops that deployed around the perimeter. It was in the middle of a forest on a mountain track in the middle of the night. Our, our one dozen troops, as good as they were, couldn't have done anything. And we were convinced we were going to die that night. And on top of that, I heard the shelling into Garage Day. Every 30 seconds, you'd hear, boom, 
boom. I mean, the whole night. And I felt my defenses ebb away from me as the night went on. I just, I felt tremendous, I felt afraid. I felt tremendously guilty because I thought, you know, what right did I, one thing was to expose myself, but here I was exposing, there were about 20 of us between, I mean, military and then us three civilians. What, what right did I have to put others at risk? And, you know, I was convinced I was going to die. And I, I spent half the night praying that I, that I wouldn't die. And then I spent the, half the, the rest of the night praying that I would die very quickly. I had this image of these, these adolescents whose body had been ripped apart. And I had horrible images of, of, of you know, bleeding to death or dying through wounds. So, um, but, but we obviously, I'm here to tell the tale. So we made it to the dawn. Um, the, the Serbs who controlled the hilltop sent down a tank um, to, to, to collect us and that we dragged our truck up and we reached the top. I mean, by then I felt tremendous relief. I remember there going, going to a pool in the woods of, of ice cold water and, and washing my face in this pool and just surrounded by the trees and having this immense sense of gratitude for being alive. And that sustained me. I mean, that made me um, feel good. And then Sarajevo sent a very large rescue mission led by French paratroopers that, that came through that evening. And, and we drove back overnight with huge reinforcements. But after that, my nerve was broken. And, and I was back in Sarajevo. And every, as fearless, I went from one extreme to the other. Every time I had a shell... I would sleep through, it was a joke at the office, how I could sleep through the nights of worse shelling. But this time, every time I heard a gunshot, I, I would shake. And I was convinced we were all going to die. And I had this idea in my head, we were all going to die. So I stayed for about a week or 10 days in Sarajevo. And I thought I hadn't been out for about two months. And so everybody was saying, you just need a break, get out. So I left, but then I couldn't face going back. I had severe post-traumatic stress disorder that I didn't want to admit to or talk about. And it took me decades to recover. And the worst was when I actually left, I stayed a few more months working in the region. And I kept on testing myself. I, I, I was posted to Split, from which we had a massive aid operation into central Bosnia. Split is on the coast. But I would keep going into Mostar, which was also under shelling and fighting, to see to see if I was still scared, but I was definitely still scared. But then once I got out and rested and I went back to Chile, then things really went to bits. I mean, it got far from getting better when I left the theater of operations, removed myself completely. That's when things really fell apart. And I literally, I would get panic attacks crossing the street. I could not open my mouth to speak. I definitely want to to touch upon that just a little bit more. I do want to hear about the feeling, you know, going to that location and accomplishing what you and your team did accomplish, having those airlifts come in, opening that airport up for those supplies. How did that feel to actually have that mission be a success, knowing that you were part of that group that made that happen and, and got those supplies to those people? Well, there are many mixed feelings. I mean, at the time, you know, when I was still on my high, we were doing things that nobody had done, that nobody thought was possible. We were negotiating ceasefires. We were crossing enemy lines. We were exposing ourselves more than the highly trained, heavily armed military were, NATO military. And we were succeeding so at the time, that was a tremendous high and boost. And we all thought this was contributing to the end of the siege. And the politics was beyond our control. And certainly, Ogata and our leadership, including my dear friend, Jose Maria Mendeluso, who's now dead, were constantly advocating that humanitarian intervention was not the solution. So we, even at that time, had very little pretense that, that we were in a solution. But we did what we could. 
Absolutely. And I think you you touched on a key element here where you say hindsight. I mean, we learn from these experiences. We we pull the skills and we pull the the knowledge from these moments, these experiences, no matter what the outcome is. And I think you're doing a tremendous job right now advocating using these experiences with your current work. So I'd love to hear how those experiences form you as a person now and as an operator within the UN now. The environment in which we operate has changed dramatically, not least due to a series of terrorist attacks, including, I mean, the first one was the one that killed my close friend and, and boss of four years, Sergio Vieira de Mello in Iraq uh, in 2003. So the sort of operations I described today couldn't really unfold in that form. It would be much more difficult. You'd have so many security barriers so in that sense, things, things have changed. And I think we have to uphold security, but that proximity to people is ultimately what defines us. And where security makes that impossible to operate, I think we have to question ourselves if the trade-off isn't, isn't too big. That's one thing. But coming back to your question, so I, I worked in my last field duty station was in Central Africa privileged to be part of that. But then now I'm in New York. It's in a very different environment. I mean, it's at the top of the ivory tower, if you like. And I have a a senior management position, so I'm very removed from that. I have two projects that you could say couldn't be further removed from the start of my career in El Janina in Darfur, where we didn't have electricity. One of the projects I'm leading now for the Secretary General is to try and promote cooperation on new technologies, digital technologies, to make sure they're a greater force for good and to contain some of the negative fallout on privacy, on human rights, on security, etc. And another project, because this is our 75th anniversary, is to try and create a platform for people to express what they see as their priorities for international cooperation and how they think we could function better. So you could say, what the hell does that have to do with working in refugee camps or in the midst of siege? I mean, ultimately, it's always about, in our work, it always has to be about people and trying to find ways in your work to serve those who need us most. The new sign of inequality in this world It used to be access to food. It's now access to digital. And people will lose lives, lose certainly lose jobs where that digital divide exists. So again, it's about people and the people who are least advantaged. And the other aspect of my work is trying to find new meaning for multilateralism. Now, you can argue There was a poll in Germany that showed that 70% of people in Germany has one of the highest levels of education in the world, didn't know what multilateralism means. So we tend to talk about international cooperation. In UNHCR's work in Darfur 35 years ago, in a very real sense, it saved lives among a severely, uh, an extremely poor refugee group. But multilateralism and its deficit or where it's working will lead to lives being lost or saved now. So, you know, those, those experiences have given me the compass in my career and also the inspiration. I mean, this will sound, many field colleagues would know exactly what I'm talking about, but it's much easier to get demotivated working at the heart of the bureaucracy as advantaged as we are in New York in normal times than it is when you're on the front lines in the field. Because when you're on the front line in the field, you see the impact of your work. And you see, you have the privilege of being among the the ultimate in heroism. Remembering that keeps you motivated. The sun came up, the world began to shake.
Stay.